Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman. California was doing so well, and now we've screwed it all up. We were a success story of the country, but we reopened too soon, put way too much trust in the public to do the right thing. Even now, I see far too many people out and about, far too few people wearing masks and social distancing, even people I know in my family and friends who understand the risks of this virus, slip up and break quarantine, wittingly or otherwise, it's hard to tell at this point. I'm vastly disappointed, but nowhere near surprised at our collective failure here. We should have been providing more financial relief rather than capitulating to the sparse but loud voices demanding the government prioritize the economy over our lives. Those two things should not have been mutually exclusive. Now both of those things will suffer This was all so predictable. Anyone who's been paying attention and who hasn't let themselves get swept away by ridiculous and baseless conspiracy theories or cynical politics saw this coming. In LA County, everyone used to be able to get a coronavirus test even if they didn't have symptoms, which makes sense because people can have the virus but not show symptoms. Now, demand is soaring and the county's test supplies are limited. So now only people with symptoms or who work in a high-risk environment, or who have had contact with someone who has the virus, can get a test. This is not good. Cases and hospitalizations are exploding in almost every state. Young people are increasingly the victims of this virus. Wear a damn mask and stay the hell away from other people. This won't be over until there's a vaccine, or at least daily testing for everyone, along with rigorous contact tracing. And even then, only if everyone cooperates, which they currently are not. Let's see what the latest coronavirus numbers are, according to John Hopkins University. 12 million cases worldwide, with nearly 550,000 deaths. 3 million cases in the U.S., with more than 132,000 deaths. In L.A. County, 121,000 cases with 3,600 deaths. And in Pasadena... 1,439 cases with 97 deaths. Here are the statistics I want to see. Of the people who have contracted COVID-19, how many took this pandemic seriously versus didn't? And how many were Trump supporters versus weren't? I bet those would be some truly revealing numbers. And now Trump has submitted a letter withdrawing the United States from the World Health Organization based on criticism that he should be leveling it himself. I mean, it's not like we're in the middle of a global pandemic or anything. It's just unreal. But have no doubt, shit will get weirder and weirder the closer we get to November 3rd. He's not going to change unless he contracts the virus himself, and maybe not even then. That's looking increasingly likely as more and more people around him test positive. They probably wouldn't even tell us if he did, or if he already has. 
I'd also like to address the recent movement for structural change to combat systemic racism. We have seen some tangible progress, but not nearly enough. The protests, as they always do, have died down. We have to keep pushing. The next step is policy change, especially at the local and state levels. It's putting pressure on city councils and mayors to, to substantially reduce the budgets of police departments and transfer much of their responsibilities to unarmed and specially trained social service type workers to handle calls such as domestic disturbances, mental health issues, and so much more. Anything that doesn't involve violent crime does not need a violent response. Also, every police department in the country should have effective and efficient civilian oversight. Clearly, even good police departments have proven themselves incapable of throwing one of their own under the bus, even if they did something wrong. The police wield entirely too much power in our society, more than even well-intentioned people can be trusted with. They must be held accountable for their actions, just like everybody else. Not to mention be held to a higher standard than everybody else. Right now, that's not the case, and everyone knows it. Beyond policing, white people must do better in just about every aspect of society. On that note, how about a moment of levity? Let's check in with our senior influencer correspondent, Brad the Influencer. Bradford? Hey everybody, it's Brad. How are you guys doing through all this? Um, well, you can see that I'm in my comfort robe right now because I'm kind of just in need of like comfort and um, one thing I'm missing and a lot of you probably are missing too is like human contact and he like hugs and stuff like that so since we can't touch each other and I don't want anyone near me um, I've come up with a few ways that I can kind of comfort myself so they're basically just hand hugs so like here's one of them you know it's, that's kind of nice and then uh, you can kind of intertwine your fingers and hold them passionately like that. And another one is if you just sit on your hand for a few minutes, and I'm not gonna do a few minutes here, but eventually your hand will fall asleep and then you can hold the hand and it feels like you're holding somebody else's hand, especially if you close your eyes and just imagine. So um, love you guys, hope this influenced you. Stay safe out there. Our guest this week is journalist Jessica Yellen, former chief White House correspondent for CNN. She's also the founder of News Not Noise, a fresh voice in media that provides daily news reports on Instagram. You can find the account at Jessica Yellen. She is an Emmy and Gracie award-winning political journalist who has covered Capitol Hill, domestic politics, state and national elections, the culture wars, and issues facing women in the workplace for CNN, ABC News, and MSNBC. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, the LA Times, and the Atlantic, as well as many others. She is a graduate of Harvard University and her first novel, Savage News, about reporting while female, is available now from HarperCollins. Earlier this week, I moderated a discussion with Ms. Yellen for the Pacific Council on International Policy, a West Coast-based think and do tank where I work. The following are excerpts from our conversation. Relevant to this show, I began by asking her to tell us about her book, Savage News. Well, it's a novel about a young female journalist working at a cable news channel. Imagine that. Uh, it has sex, scandal, infighting, and it's not a White House tell-all, believe it or not. 
of these days, it could be one, right? <laughs> um, the book is really a, a story of what it's like to be a young driven reporter working inside the crazy circus of television news in Washington in this kind of moment. And it was a vehicle for me to kind of open up the experience and let people in to see kind of what it's really like when you're making the sausage. Because people would always ask me, you know, what's it like to work at the White House or cover the White House? What's it like to be on demand, on schedule? And always the things they ask aren't the things that drive you nuts every day. And I wanted to give people like a glimpse into both the pressures and challenges and also the unique the unique challenges of doing it all as a woman. Has public trust in the media been irreparably damaged or are you optimistic that that trust can be built back up again? Wow, that's a big question. I think that there's a couple pieces to the erosion of public trust. One, let just to be blunt and put the, you know, is the president calling it fake news what the media does fake news? The other is what happened with Facebook in the last election. And then the third is just the, the natural evolution of our media that has grown from local newspapers where you knew your newspaper person and you trusted them and you that gave that paper credibility to more distant control where there are distant papers that you get to television and then the internet and then this proliferation of news sources. So the fact that we've accelerated to this point where so many people get their news from sources that already share their point of view and sometimes aren't credible at all that is a problem that's not going away and we have to figure out how to engage to shift. Um, the problem of Facebook is something, and, and we can get into that in more detail, but what they've done with politics and news is something that can be regulated. Um, the mistrust that the public has in the media as a result of the president calling us fake news, I think to some extent that can be remedied when there's a president in that role, Democrat or Republican, who does not do that thing. Mm -hmm. um, the one last thing I'll say about this is, it's, it became my belief covering Washington that attacks only stick and work when they're based on something that's true. And the president's attack on fake news only works, not because the news is fake, but because there's something the public is unhappy with in the media, they sense that, mm -hmm. and it, it, he's giving them a way to make sense of it. That's not right. What we do every day is try to get the truth and do the best we can, but there are challenges in how we're telling the news that need to change so the public feels more comfortable with us every day. Going back to um, uh, social media, are, are, are those companies doing enough to combat disinformation, especially from politicians, political candidates on their platforms? You know, we see Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg uh, refusing to vet or ban lies and political ads, and we also see Twitter adding you know, essentially warning labels uh, to some of Trump's recent tweets. Where, where do you think that the line should be for these companies? First, huge kudos to Twitter for being the first to mark the president's um, untruthful tweets as untruthful. Uh, I I think it came really late, but it, it shifted sentiment and it created the oxygen for Facebook that made it so much pressure Facebook had to do the same or their mm -hmm. version of the same. Um, I have a soft spot for Instagram because I found an audience there and it's been a platform that is inviting for what I do. I picked it because it had no real news voice there at the time I joined. Um, having said that, God, no, they haven't 
have they done enough they haven't even begun to do? Like, we're in trouble. It's a crisis. It's like, you know, on Def, we're in DEFCON. They need to act. And uh, it's evident they're not going to self-regulate. Uh, the fact that, you know, politicians can post lies and attribute it, you know, own it, and Facebook will post it. Now they'll post it with a disclaimer. I mean, they will literally promote your lie. And they'll just say, as a disclaimer, this might not be true. Here's some more information. It's not okay. I think they need to be regulated the way media companies are in a modern sense. And I think that the fact they've been so slow to change means that they will end up regulated because everybody, they, they've, they've enraged Democrats and Republicans. Right. It'll catch up with them eventually. Uh -huh. um, uh, so tell us more about News Not Noise. So what, what compelled you to start? Uh, th this outlet and and, and uh, a little more on why you chose Instagram in particular as the platform and, and how it differs from uh, your experience at CNN? Um, great question. So that's what I call it. I call it hashtag news, not noise, but it's under my name, Jessica Yellen. And what my whole thing was, I got into the news because I wanted to help people understand what's going on. I want, I, I sound super corny when I say this, but there's a reason the free press is the only private business explicitly protected in the U.S. Constitution. And it's because it's the duty of the press to inform citizens in a democracy so they can make an informed vote. And I, as a political reporter, would spend all my time chasing swing voters. You know, when I was at these networks, at the end of an election, swing voters are the ones who will decide it. So they're the only thing we focus on, really. And I found that overwhelmingly they were women and there was this conventional wisdom in Washington that they can't make up their minds about who to vote for because they don't care about politics. They're disengaged mm -hmm. and they're up for grabs by both parties. But basically, they're silly. Why wouldn't these women know? Mm -hmm. And I was out there talking to them every day. And it's not that they didn't care. They cared deeply. They didn't they didn't grok the way we're talking to them. Mm -hmm. We would shout about, the, you know, Pelosi said this, or Boehner said that, or this Romney Obama sling, you know, uh, slander fest, whatever. They want to know: Is my health care going to go up? What's that policy? Who will behave in a way that I can raise kids to admire? It's a different approach. And I would go home and pitch doing things that way, and everyone's like, "Oh no, 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 no! That's not no. no. Just stop. Don't be difficult. Do the assignment." Hmm. So, for a lot of reasons, I left. And I just had this intuition that there's an audience that wants news told differently. And so I decided I'm going to try to do it. I pitched this all over Hollywood and I was told, oh, God, no, no. In the future, news will only come from comedians. Wow. Or in the future, there will be no news. Um, so I was just like, my friends are like, just do it. Start. And I started, I had to pick where. Instagram skews female. And it's a friendlier environment. It's not as like snarky as Twitter. And it didn't have the toxic hangover of, of news, you know, toxicity that Facebook had. Mm -hmm. So I tried, tried it there. And then it grew and it turns out I have an audience that's largely female, but dudes like it too. And, and uh, I imagine they're more responsive or there's a more direct relationship than, than reporting the news on TV. Yeah, the difference is on TV, I could be on the White House lawn surrounded by like, you know, three people, a producer, a cameraman, a sound guy, and everything's taken care of. And you talk to millions of people and you have no idea if they got it. Like, you know, it's like the camera goes off and it's just done. Here, I post something and I immediately get feedback. I don't know what that word meant. 
I don't agree with you. Would you tell me this? How about, you know, here's an article, here's a video. And you get this like immediate engagement that's really interesting and it helps you figure out where to go with your stories and how to do the news. Um, and, you know, I have an audience that like spans Caltech professors to people who don't know how to Google a headline. And I have to teach both, you know, be a source for both. And I, I really like that engagement and dynamic. It gets exhausting, but it's also hugely invigorating because I feel like there's an opportunity ahead of the election to really inform people, get people who aren't always engaged, engaged, and then after the election, keep them engaged so they participate consistently. Kind of a, an all-hands-on-deck kind of moment. I mean, truly. <laughs> I, that's how I think of it. Like, what can I contribute to make a difference right now? What am I good at doing? How can I help move the needle? How has COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic changed the way the news is reported? How, how has reporting the news in general changed over the last few years? Well, I think in the case of COVID, it's a reminder of how valuable the news is. Like, you know, I just, I, I'm a, I've been a critic of CNN, but it's, I think it's a national treasure right now. And plenty they do wrong. Yeah, we can have that conversation, but you get like Sanjay Gupta's on there and, you know, Anderson's asking these questions to the public uh, of experts and across the hours, you're actually getting information. And we need that because we're not getting clear information from our federal government right now. So um, I think during COVID, yes, it can be dark and stressful. And a lot of people need to change their news diet or develop a news diet, which I'm very serious about, so that you limit your consumption. And I have other advice that people are interested in that. But it's not the news's fault that the news is dark and grim. It's your fault if you're not turning it off sometimes. <laughs> and I think that they're doing a very good job right now of helping to get information out. What is some of your advice for shutting off the news? Yeah, so for people who find themselves like depressed by the news and by the amount they're consuming, which is a thing, like social science proves that it happens, mm -hmm. um, set a time of day or two times, whatever's your thing, two, three times a day that you check the news, decide in advance for how long you'll spend on the news, so you don't get sucked into the black hole of like that tweet, this thread, that blog, a podcast. So time of day, amount of time, sources you trust, um, and turn off notifications. Mm. You don't need notifications, I do, Sewell does. Like, we need to know things as they're happening, let us be the front line, turn them off. You don't need to know the minute the thing happens. And then the last thing I'll say is super LA and cheesy. Put down your phone when you're done, take a moment and close your eyes and like reconnect with yourself. Because one of the things that happens is you find yourself in the story and sped up by it. And you need to like create almost an oxygen gap between it and you to remember, I can't control that. It's happening, I'm informed, this is my life. Wow. Five steps. What is the best way that people can um, support journalism and, and especially local journalism, but just in general? Pay for it. <laughs> pay for it. I can't tell you, we, this is a job. We need to pay other people to do the job. Just because it's easy to hack it and get it for free doesn't mean like if it all went away, you wouldn't be happy. So I can't tell you how many times, you know, on Instagram, I'll post some a story and you can swipe up and somebody will tell me, well, it's behind a paywall. 
And I'll say, if you can't afford it, I completely understand and I can summarize it for you. But if you can, please support their journalism. Mm -hmm. And so for everybody who's on this and probably can afford it, anytime you hear that like call for donations or you've done 10 articles and now it's time to subscribe, what's $10 a month? Do it. Keep the free press alive. Do you think we we should be concerned about... um sliding further down this path of you know you know the way reporters have been treated lately at these at these big protests by law enforcement uh you know, the black reporter who was arrested live on air on cnn for example uh, reporters saying i'm pressed they're lying on their bellies on the floor and getting maced in the face for no reason um it, it seems it seems to have taken a, a dark turn between law enforcement and and uh journalists lately yeah I agree with you, and it's chilling. I mean, that is the line between, you know, freedom and fascism, right? Like that's that's vital. Um, and I think we've been. I don't think this is a hundred percent like something turned on in this moment. I covered um, I covered the Tea Party movement. I covered Palin rallies. I had um, the experience of, you know, people. I was never physically attacked, but there was up in your face, hatred, threatening behavior. Um, There was, you remember when they used to say, exercise your second amendment rights. I want to exercise, and right there's the free press. Do you want to exercise your second amendment rights on them? Those sorts of things predate this moment. And so I think we've had a tolerant attitude about it and kind of didn't know how to engage it. And the thing is now we can't deny that this is a problem. I have friends in the press who are scared to go to certain places because they know that there's just this fear that at some point someone's gonna get really hurt. And um, they're now accompanied by security a lot of places and and that that's not the America I know. You know, people are often interested about the, the um, behind the scenes of what it's like to be a White House correspondent. What, what are the politics, logistics of the briefing room? What's it like to fly and report on Air Force One? Is, and is it hard to hold power accountable when it's right there in front of you? So uh, the thing about covering the White House is it, it gets very exhausting, but there are some things that never get old. So the press briefing room is teeny tiny and you live and work in a booth that's the size of a small shower. And there are often people, like you'll have a Formica desk with three people sitting on one side and three people on the other side, and you're crammed into this tiny shower and there's zero privacy. And it's dank and you're in a basement and it doesn't smell great. And to get to food, you have to pass through security and cross many blocks. And it's like a physically challenging situation. Um, On the other hand, when the president comes and goes, we always go out to watch it. And every single time Marine One, that big helicopter, comes flies in, you're standing on the White House lawn and it flies past the Washington Monument and with the thumping wings lands in front of you and it says United States of America, it's a thrill. Mm -hmm. And every time you go to Andrews Air Force Base and you walk out on the tarmac and you see Air Force One in front of you, it's a thrill. Um, And those are the things that help when you keep the job exciting. It's not like it's the perk, it's a reminder of why you're doing this. Mm -hmm. Like it's a larger calling. And you're not doing it to service your boss or DC. You're doing it because this is part of what America is. And those are the moments you get that reminder. 
That said, Air Force One itself has the worst food. And like the chairs are so uncomfortable and all of it is not what you think, but um, it doesn't really matter because that's not why you're there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Jessica, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest. And please follow me on Instagram at Jessica Yellen. And where's the best place for people to get your book? And you can buy it. Well, it's right behind me here, but you can buy it on Amazon. It's called Savage News. It's a very fun beach read, perfect for COVID summer 2020. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you all for tuning into my show. If you need recommendations for good reads, I suggest you check out Jessica Yellen's book, Savage News, which you heard about earlier. I also suggest you check out John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. However, I recommend that you do not purchase his book, but rather find it online or get it from the library. He withheld his testimony at a key moment in Trump's impeachment trial so that he could sell more copies of his book later on. He sold us out and he shouldn't be supported, but his book should be read by all Americans because it provides the closest look yet that we have of Trump's dysfunctional White House and his complete lack of fitness for the office. And that's coming from John Bolton, Mr. Conservative Hawk. It's a bit of a drab, dry read, but fascinating nonetheless. I also suggest you check out Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Mary is President Trump's estranged niece, who was the confidential source that provided years of Trump family tax returns to the New York Times, which resulted in an explosive report almost two years ago that contradicted Trump's claim to be a self-made billionaire and that he acquired his wealth from his father and through dubious tax schemes. The Times reporters won a Pulitzer Prize for that work. The book comes out on July 14th, so obviously I haven't read it yet, but from the looks of early coverage, it's going to be a very interesting insight on Trump's psyche and why he's such a damaged damaged man. Okay, before we go, let's check in with our senior toddler correspondent, Sienna. Thank you for that report, Sienna. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read every week or two. We've got a couple exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks. You can find this show on YouTube and Pasadena Media. Check for showtimes at PasadenaMedia.org or on my Twitter page at Justin D. Chapman. I'm Justin Chapman signing off. Learn more about my work at JustinDouglasChapman.com. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time. Thank you.